This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I am truly delighted to be in San Diego. I am particularly honored to be at this fine institution. Uh, I have an office at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, and there just aren't enough of us. Uh, I'm particularly honored because I think Joan Crock was really quite an extraordinary woman in her generosity to both local causes and global needs. She was uh, modest to almost to a fault in seeking no real recognition for what she did uh, and often surprising people with her donations. Uh, so I, I only wish there were many, many more Joan Crocs um, with her generous spirit and her real interest in bettering the world and leaving a, a legacy to her name. Um, so... I have been a war correspondent now for 45 years. I landed in the Middle East on October 6, 1973, on the day the fourth Middle East war broke out. And I remember landing, I was on my way to Iran, and someone in transit said to me, the Egyptians have just crossed the Suez Canal. It was an a huge turning point, obviously, for the region. And I've covered every war, revolution, and uprising in the Middle East ever since. It got to the point that my father once said that he didn't dare go to Bermuda on vacation with me because there'd surely be a coup (laughs) d'etat. Every time I landed someplace, some disaster happened. Uh, But I've also been fortunate in sticking with it because I have seen both bookends. I was in Soweto in 1976 when the first black students stood up to protest against a white minority government over the changing of language. Government announced that overnight schools would be teaching every subject in Afrikaans, the language of Dutch settlers, not the language that the children had been taught in. And they poured out into the streets And that was the moment that apartheid was seriously challenged. And then I, seven years in that part of the world, and I went back 15 years later to watch Nelson Mandela walk to freedom. There are bookends. There are moments when wars end. Uh, I covered two wars in the Congo against the rule of Mobutu Sesiseko, And I also got to see the end of his rule. I went to the Philippines with Pope John Paul II when I was based in Rome and saw him confront Ferdinand Marcos. It was the beginning of the people power uprising that eventually brought Marcos out of Manila. I toured Afghanistan during the Taliban's rule. I went to the camps, um, not deep into them, but I went to the camps sponsored by al-Qaeda with another uh, correspondent from the Associated Press. And I went back on the first trip with Colin Powell 
right after the U.S. ousted the Taliban. I was in Iraq during the rule of Saddam Hussein. I covered his war with Iran and uh, covered the war after he invaded Kuwait. I went back once again with Colin Powell on the first trip after Saddam Hussein was ousted. Wars do eventually end. The problem is that very volatile period we all have to live through and endure. And that's the hard part. And the world today is arguably in the toughest moment we've witnessed with more conflicts and more complicated conflicts than at any time since World War II. Syria alone has four different wars playing out. There's a war that's the civil war that started when young teenagers, 13 and 14 years old, drew graffiti on the walls against the government. They were picked up, and it was the protests against their arrests, a group of a half dozen kids, that triggered the mass protests across Syria that then very quickly did, uh, disintegrated into a civil conflict as Saddam or as Bashar Assad opened fire on his own people. There's the second war that developed last year when ISIS rose out of the ashes of al-Qaeda in Iraq in the chaos of Syria and swept in just a matter of months and now occupies a third of Syria and a third of Iraq. There's the third war that plays out on a sectarian basis, Sunni versus Shiite, but there are also other religions. Syria has a very strong Christian population. It has ethnic Kurds. There are the different components, the societal conflict. And then there's the fourth one in which we are involved, and that's the proxy wars. And it plays out between the United States and, and Russia, and it plays out between Saudi Arabia and Iran, all those outside parties. This is a war that has now forced 4 million people to flee the country, 7 million people from their homes. That's more than half of the 22 million population. 14 million people can no longer feed themselves. One of the secrets of U.S. involvement in Syria is that it is providing food aid in all 14 provinces of Syria for starving people, even in areas controlled by Bashar Assad, the president, and in areas controlled by ISIS. The U.S. had to make a very tough call. Did we allow people to starve, or did we commit to helping them stay alive? Heated debate in Washington. But this is just one of many conflicts in the region. And we have an enormous number of questions to face. Sometimes I worry a little bit that we are distracted by the moment, by the latest bomb, the latest round of deaths, the latest wave of migrants that are sweeping from Syria into Turkey, into Europe, taking ramshackle boats to Greece, trying to find any way to get into Europe, to get away from this terrible conflict. And we're not looking at some of the bigger pictures that really are the keys to peace. And one of them being, does the United States want or need to provide its military might, its diplomatic clout, its economic resources, and its human treasure in our troops to preserve borders 
that were defined by colonial powers a century ago after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, after World War I. Is that, and I'm not proposing yes or no on this, but there are some really big, epic, historic questions that we have to face that we haven't yet answered. We get so caught up in the fear element. Will what happened in Paris happen here? There is a real genuine nervousness about are we vulnerable? And everyone can look at whatever their prism and figure out whether it's a military base in San Diego, um, uh, an educational institution that takes in international students, whatever, that we all can see that prism of fear. And the big challenge for us is really getting beyond that and figuring out, as my father once said to, to me as a child and to his students, he was a very thoughtful law professor, To understand any conflict, you have to get on top of the world and look down and get away from your own fears, your biases, your preconceptions, and get beyond to figure out what what should be and what we can then do to help establish it. Now, I'm a journalist. And when they called me and asked me to give this lecture, I thought, hmm, you know, journalists have a pretty bad record historically when it comes to engagement in peace and war. There's some that are really good, particularly these days, and there are some that are really bad. Uh, The most famous, of course, was uh, the Spanish-American War. Started by what was a press war between William Randolph Hearst of the New York um, Journal and Joseph Pulitzer of the New York World, tabloids that were vying for readers and to make bigger headlines and bigger bucks. And they dispatched reporters who didn't know anything about the Cuban Revolution, the Spanish uh, intervention, uh, um, what, what was happening on the ground. And they listened to rumors and hearsay, and their editors exploited them and made them ever bigger than they were even as hearsay. And of course, it led to a growing sentiment for war against Spain. And of course, that culminated with the sinking of the USS Maine, which Hearst ran a headline that said, the warship Maine was split in two by an enemy's secret infernal machine. And the next newspaper ran blueprints of the secret infernal machine. When Hearst dispatched Frederick Remington, an artist, to draw pictures of the war, Remington finally cabled him and said, everything is quiet here. There is no trouble There will be no war. I wish to return. To which Hearst famously cabled him, Please remain. You provide the pictures. I'll provide the war. (laughs) There's been lots of yellow journalism since the Spanish-American War. Politicians, frankly, have been involved in far more grievous actions in fomenting those wars than journalists have been. But just like there are bad journalists, there have been some really noble ones. And I'm very proud of many of my colleagues 
Jason Rezahian is the Washington Post correspondent in Iran. He was born in California. He is of Iranian heritage. And he wanted to go back and explain his country to American audiences at a time that there was a lot of talk about another Middle East war by the United States in Iran. And he did wonderful stories explaining Iranian society, going behind the scenes, explaining a great culture. People who didn't like their government. He was open in very candid reportage. And he's been in jail now for almost a year and a half. There's another group that was honored last week by the Committee to Protect Journalists. It's called Raqqa is being silently slaughtered. Raqqa is the capital of ISIS in Syria. And these are a group of citizen journalists. They have no formal training. They're getting out with their cell phones and loading them on the Internet, the pictures they see of beheadings, uh, writing the stories of what's happening to women. Incredibly brave, incredibly daring, and for them, deadly. ISIS followed one of the journalists who was taking material from northern Syria into Turkey, and they murdered him and beheaded him in Turkey this very recently. Last night I was going through a list of war correspondents who died in covering wars. And since 1992, there have been 1,153. And there aren't that many of us, particularly today in a world where the traditional media has ever smaller resources, ever smaller staffs, where, as I said to a couple of groups today, I wish everyone, every day, read the New York Times and The Economist but the vast majority of readers much prefer USA Today and People magazine. And we can only provide, in a capitalist society, what the public supports and wants to hear. And because we are so far away from so much of the action, we have the luxury of opting to read People instead of The Economist, which, by the way, is a wonderfully written, very easy, accessible magazine. It does not write long treatises. It's a terrible name for really the best news magazine in the world. And it's trying... People blame the media for what we give them. And, oh, I ache so often to be able to provide more. But there isn't the interest. So... Um, when I was thinking about all these war correspondents, I realized something. War correspondent is really a misnomer. Most of these people are really much more interested in understanding what it takes to get to peace. What are the reasons we're at war? Who are the players? What are the circumstances, the causes? How did we get here? There's a lot of boom, boom, bang, bang, particularly in television coverage. But there's also a lot of very thoughtful efforts to try to explain the context of conflict. I often tell journalists that 
young journalists who say, oh, I want to do what you want, what you're doing, and how do I do it? I tell them, first of all, the act of journalism is very different than the art of journalism. And I tell them that only 5% of journalism is actually writing the story. And only 5% of covering a war is seeing the bang-bang. 95% is knowing enough about a war, about a people, a subject, a flashpoint, an issue, a cause, as well as the history of a place something we don't have very much of, but other societies do, to be able to know what's true, because the truth is so elusive, particularly in an age where, ironically, we have more information and more misinformation and propaganda and political bickering than arguably at any time in our history, for sure. Truth is like a puzzle with a thousand pieces, And so often we only get a piece or two. Orwell once said, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it hates those who speak it. It's very true. Uh, I found another wonderful line that, that really put it in perspective. Because perception so often becomes reality. And perception is just that. John Moore said, your opinion is your opinion. Your perception is your perception. But don't ever confuse either with the facts or the truth. Wars have been fought and millions have been killed because of the inability of people to understand the idea that everybody has a different viewpoint. And peace is ultimately about getting to the point that we know enough about others to tolerate them and to coexist with them. Now, I can talk about... I want to tell you a little bit about some of the the people that I have spent time with. So often we talk about peace in terms of the politicians and the generals and the war and the people, the warriors, the people who have control over a war. When at the end of the day, it's so often the ordinary people. I spend most of my life as a street reporter. I've met all kinds of, you know, leaders and traveled, uh, you know, uh, whether it's Idi Amin or Muammar Gaddafi, um, F.W. de Klerk, the South African leader, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, I've had them all at some point in my life. But the people who impress me the most, the ones who are making the difference, are the ordinary folks that some of you in the audience are helping in their own ways, whether it's helping them create civil society, helping them get access to education. When I look at the Arab Spring, which is disintegrated into an earthquake, it was started by people who still want the spring. They just don't know how to get there. And they include a young Egyptian woman who at the age of eight was told by her mother on her birthday to put her best dress on. She was going for a special event. And she was so excited. And she told me the story, and she let me write it with her name on it. And she was taken instead to be circumcised. And she was so traumatized by this that she started arguing with her father and her uncles 
so that her sisters and her cousins would not have to go through this. And she failed and failed and failed until the last cousin, when she stayed up all night with her uncle, and she argued with him not to do this to her. And that if he did this to her, he, she was going to cut off her cousin's finger. And Dahlia said to her uncle, you do that, I, I will cut off her finger. And her uncle said, well, why would you do that? And she said, you're going to ruin her life? And what's the difference if I cut off her finger? So her uncle the next day called her and said, you've convinced me. So little Dahlia, as a teenager, decided she was going to take this taboo issue and talk about it in her public school. And she started a campaign against female genital mutilation. 85% of Egyptian girls have this done to them. It's not a Muslim practice. It's Christians and Muslims. It's that part of Africa. And she made a difference. When she got to college, she decided she wanted to broaden her campaign, and she started an NGO on human rights, bigger issues, during the rule of Hosni Mubarak. But she loved movies. She loved chick flicks. She loved adventure movies, mysteries. And so she decided she was going to organize the first Arab film festival on human rights. And she was in her early 20s. And she went to get the permission. And of course, the censorship board said, no, can't do that. Won't give you permission. So she waited by the elevator for the director of the censorship board, rode up on the elevator with him, made her case. She's a feisty little thing. And they finally gave her permission. And then, of course, the theater where she was going to show her movies suddenly had its permit revoked on technical grounds. So she and her friends mobilized. They had their bake sales and raised some funds from friends. And they rented one of the kind of meager boats on the Nile that caters to tourists or couples who want to take a ride down the Nile. And they all got on board, all the activists and the students and so forth, and she showed her films once they took off from the dock. And that led a couple of people in her audience to come up to her and say, I want to make a film. If I make a film, will you show it at next year's film festival? And she said yes. And one of the films the next year was just one minute long, and it showed flower after flower after flower budding, and then a pair of scissors coming and snipping off the bud. And with each snip, a a young girl yelled, cried in the background. You got the message. What she has done, she was out in force at Tahrir Square distributing her latest effort. She found out about a Martin Luther King educational comic book. It was in comic book type format that had on the back page instructions on civil disobedience, and it was about the Montgomery story. She translated it into Arabic. And she had 2,000 copies made. And she distributed it all over Tahrir Square. Peaceful, civil disobedience. Now, she decided, after Hosni Mubarak resigned, 
that she would run for parliament in the first parliamentary election. Youngest candidate ever in Egyptian history. She didn't win. Tahrir Square was actually in her district. But she came away with a sense of how to do it, beginning to understand how do you engage in politics with no experience, no network, no resources, starting from scratch. That for all the chaos we see in the region, there are so many of these stories. There's the young Kuwaiti psychologist who had five sons, and he didn't want his sons to be impressed, engrossed in Al-Qaeda when Osama bin Laden was a big draw. And so he wanted to figure out a way to reach them. And he came up with the idea of the 99. These are 99 young, these are 99 superheroes, and they're all young. And 99 because of the association with 99 in Islam. 99 people from different countries. There's even an American. They're handicapped. Half of them are women. Uh, They are of all races. They reflect the wider Islamic world. And each one of the 99 has one virtue, one of the traits of God, one of the 99 traits of God. Charity, good works, Each superhero then took on, in his own way, the nemesis, the the figure modeled on Osama bin Laden. These comic books took off. They're now translated in eight different languages. They're distributed from Morocco to Indonesia, across the Islamic world, again, creating an alternative. They then, because there was such interest, they then created the first game parks or theme parks based on the 99. The first one opened in Kuwait. There are others in the Gulf. PBS actually did a documentary about it called Wham! Bam! Islam about uh, this extraordinary young psychologist who was trying to tap into the, the great quest for heroes in a modern era in a part of the world where the politics and the politicians have been corrupted or autocratic and there's no one really to look at. And that's one of the reasons bin Laden and others have emerged uh, to kind of captivate, to become uh, uh, figures of might trying to do, in their view, not ours, something on behalf of their people. So there are all kinds of people the Tunisian uprising, which was the first place the uprising began, and I want to show you some pictures, was riveting to me because even before the young fruit vendor set himself on fire to protest corruption, a young rapper sang a song. Rap was illegal in Tunisia, can you imagine? Not allowed on the radio, not allowed to be recorded, not allowed to be performed in public. So he did a rap song and he put it on Facebook. Five years ago, 20% of Tunisia's population was on Facebook. Today, well over half that. The government has its own Facebook account. But what's fascinating is the song 
was more critical of the government in Tunisia than any politician since Tunisia became independent from France had ever been. He talked about how people were living on garbage, that people went to school and they graduated and they still didn't know how basically to read and write. He talked about corruption within the police. It was a daring song. And what was fascinating was after the young fruit vendor set himself on fire, launching the uprising, people across Tunisia sang that rap song and it spread to Egypt and Bahrain across the Arab world. Rap has become the rhythm of resistance in the Middle East. And it's fascinating to see people coming from all different places you'd never expect and creating the vision. They are young. They have generations to go before they will be able to create alternatives. But so often we spend time looking at the warlords and, and the politicians, and we don't spend enough time understanding the people on the ground. Now, I talk a lot about perceptions and And what I do when I go to the region, I spend more time on the streets. And I have a little camera. And what I do is I look for the people who have their souls on their face in some way. It can be joy, sorrow, anger, whatever. And I tell them in whatever language, Vous avez un visage extraordinaire. You have an extraordinary face. And I take their pictures. And I try to see something different. So what I thought I would do is take you to some of the places that I've been that are in the news now and show you some of the people. I want to leave you with a different perception rather than the reality you so often see. It's the one thing I can share with you tonight are some of the people I've met along the way. So this is Iran. This is the image we have, the we're going to finish you off, when in fact the majority of Iranians are far more interested in peace than the 76% in, a, in a one poll, even higher in others have said they support a nuclear deal, they, they want better relations with the outside world, including the United States. So there's still this stuff. This is the hangover from the revolution. This is the American embassy. I covered the revolution. I stood at the foot of the steps of the plane in Algiers when the hostages were flown to freedom. I've been trying for 34 years to get back into the embassy, and I did last year and again in May. And this is the stuff that's still outside. That's me in front of their... their very poorly sculpted imitation of the Statue of Liberty. That's all of it, the museum is now, uh, the embassy is now a museum, and all the old equipment is still there. It, I, I couldn't resist showing it to you because it's the one thing everybody thinks about, oh, the takeover of the American embassy. Nobody actually goes um, inside to see it. It's kind of a part of, it's relegated to kind of real history. But this is still set up with the same ticker tape as, This is the room where uh, U.S. diplomats would have their secret meetings. They call it the glassy room, for those of you who can see the writing on the the sign. And they have three really poorly dressed mannequins who um, are supposed to be American diplomats with very bad wigs um, sitting around the table supposedly to kind of demonstrate what the Americans did. Um, 
Now, this is an interesting guy. I decided I wanted to hear, as I always try to do, every side of a story. As I said, there are a thousand pieces in a puzzle, and there are a thousand pieces in any story. And so I went to see Ibrahim Oscar Zadeh, who, um, as you can see now, is a properly coiffed and uh, cleanly shaven, no beard, uh, figure who, when he ran for parliament, uh, called for the restoration of ties with the United States. Hard to believe. He's now been marginalized by his own government. This was from the bazaar in Tehran. I couldn't resist. When I, when I spoke to this fellow, and he said, you're American. I said, yes. He said, oh, I've got to show you this. But now, this is an interesting man. This is a Grand Ayatollah. And again, you hear the Grand Ayatollah and you think, uh-oh. This is a man who is the leading feminist in Iran, arguing for women's rights. He has approved, uh, um, he issued a fatwa allowing abortions for women. Uh, he actually writes letters for women to go to the hospital uh, to have them to make sure that they don't face problems. Uh, not everybody is what you might think they look like. This is a woman I met in a, uh, a mosque, and, and she said to me, where are you from? And I said, Amrika, Amrika, is how they pronounce it. Ah, she said, welcome, welcome. <laughs> My point with all the kids that I'm showing you is that what happened after the revolution is really interesting. Iran, uh, the clerics called on women to breed an Islamic generation, and boy, did they. And the population doubled in a decade, 34 million to 62 million. And what happened was they ended up with a generation that they realized they couldn't ultimately feed, clothe, house, educate, and employ. And the revolution lowered the voting age to 15. Well, they first raised it to 16 and then 18 and realized they couldn't go any higher. So they introduced the, the most imaginative family planning program in the world. It won the highest award from the United Nations. Everything in Iran is free now. Tubal ligation, vasectomy, IUD, the pill, condoms, you name it. You want it, you got it. They instituted a program where they hired 34,000 women to go door to door to, to preach the benefits of keeping family size to two. The average family size at the time was over seven. And they argued, look, the children will be healthier because you have more resources. A woman can have a better life. We'll have more money for defense of the nation. They gave it everything they got. Then they introduced a program that anyone to get married would have to go through a family planning class. And I decided I wanted to see what they learned. And they couldn't get their marriage license until they passed it. And many of the people in the class I attended were arranged marriages. They didn't really know each other, and the bride always had her father or brother with her. And these classes were really graphic. I learned a lot. <laughs> and, and it worked. And Iran has brought the birth rate down to replacement, just below. But they still have the young to deal with. And the interesting thing about the revolution is that traditional families that didn't send their girls beyond the sixth grade under the Shah for fear they'd be exposed to 
immorality and makeup and miniskirts. After the revolution began sending the girls to school, Iran has closed the gender gap between male and female. There are more girls in school than boys. 64% of the student body at universities across the country are female. And it's making an extraordinary difference. These little girls were uh, doing a biology class in a park. And they just couldn't engage with, they they just wanted to talk and wanted to engage. And they were all telling me about their plants and, you know, photosynthesis and all these things I'd forgotten from. uh, But the, the girls in Iran are real dynamos. And this is true across the region. Uh, but because they have closed the, generation, the, the education gap so profoundly, Iran is way ahead of most of its Arab countries. Now, um, this was a group of students I met in May at the, as they were graduating from the University of Tehran. They were hams, total. Uh, I got out my little camera. Ah, oh, and they all amassed. Didn't even, I didn't even have to ask them. And they were, look at those fingernails. I mean, look at that makeup. When I first went to Iran after the revolution, I had little pale pink nail polish on. And uh, the steward on the plane said, oh, you'll have to take that off. And, you know, what woman carries nail polish remover in her bag? So he gave me 10 Band-Aids. And when I went through immigration, the guard said to me, are you badly injured? (laughs) Today, it's a very different story. Revolutions evolve. And Iran has, in part because of things that are kind of beyond their control. This is, again, just to give you a different perception of a place that in February, 37 years after the revolution is changed, you know, this is no longer a black society for women. There's a young bride and her maid of honor looking at her wedding dress. Now look at the legs on this model. I'll tell you a secret. I bought the sexiest dress I ever owned in Iran after the revolution, and I've never found a place to wear it in the United States. <laughs> True. This is a store window. You know, this is, again, not what you perceive in, uh, in a rigid theocracy. And it is a theocracy. But what society is doing, what people are doing to force the government to change, to elect people, even in a narrow field, who will engage with the United States, who will do a nuclear deal. There is hope in this. No nuclear deal, no diplomacy will ever get everything we want. That's the nature of diplomacy. But it is a beginning point. And the Iranians ended up agreeing to it, less because of the sanctions we imposed, and I'll show you a picture in a minute, and more because of the reality that that generation that had bred that decade are now between 25 and 35 years old. They are more than half the electorate. And the revolutionaries are in their 60s and 70s. And Iran doesn't want another war. Saddam Hussein invaded. They lost a million people. These were a group of students I met in a park, and I couldn't resist since I was at a university. Um, They came over, and they just wanted... They they meet Fridays in the park, and they talk about a different issue each week, and they were talking about urban development and urban sprawl on that particular day. Um, But they were very playful. 
Um, you know, again, these are the faces of people. This is a guy who's in the Iranian army, not the Revolutionary Guards. There's a big difference. Um, these were two museum guards. Again, you know, a smile <laughs> can make quite a difference. Two firemen. I decided they're hunky everywhere in the world. <laughs> now, this, believe it or not, again, I've always found that everyone ultimately wants to tell their stories. This is at Khomeini's tomb. Khomeini is buried behind that grid. These two guys are dusters. That's what they do at Khomeini's tomb. And they were delighted to talk to me and tell me their stories. Now, Iran has its history, too, and its war trauma. And it's one of, uh, as I said, it reacted to the nuclear deal in part because of its own history. These are uh, portraits, uh, billboards, all over Tehran of people who, um, young men who died uh, in the war with Iraq. Over 100,000 people were killed by Saddam Hussein using chemical weapons alone. Largest use of chemical weapons since World War I. Um, this is, again, the tulip is the symbol of martyrdom. One of the funny things about Iran is um, the tulip came from Iran, and they're very angry at the Dutch for claiming it. It was the Dutch ambassador to Iran who took back the first bulbs. But the, the tulip is the um, symbol of loss. People in Iran, every Friday, go down. This is the section for the martyrs of the war, and they take picnics. And um, it is part of the religious tradition to, they sit and have a picnic by the grave, and they will tap the grave, each one of them, and have a conversation with, um, in this case, the son of the woman, um, uh, the, the brother of the woman with the blue um, and gray scarf. Uh, and you can see the fruit. And they insisted that I join them. This is another man coming to honor his brother. Uh, this is the director of the Peace Museum in Tehran. It's dedicated to the history of Saddam Hussein's use of chemical weapons. Um, he lost his legs in one of uh, the artillery attacks um, that also contained chemical weapons. And there are today 70,000 people still dying of chemical weapons uh, from mustard gas that begins to destroy the lungs um, and blinds people, and he knows that, that his death will be a gruesome one. This is another one of my heroes. He's a journalist, and I thought, in light of our topic tonight, it might be interesting. He's holding a toothbrush. We had to meet at a neutral spot. He started the first independent newspaper in Iran. He's actually a lot younger than he, than he looks. Uh, and it was disbanded by the government. He started another one. It was disbanded by the government. He started another one. He has been to prison time and time and time again. The reason he has this toothbrush is because he knows he'll be arrested again. And he said the toothbrushes they give you in prison are terrible. So he carries this one around with him. Brave people. But Iran has also moved on. And these are two of the interesting characters I met. They're twins. And they are the founders and owners of the Amazon of Iran, today worth $150 million dollars. And the young no longer are interested in the debate over the ideal Islamic state, not in Iran. They're interested in startups. 
I also went to see the young woman, 26 year old, years old, who started the Groupon of Iran. This is the warehouse that they're, um, it's called Digicala. And he was telling me, it was right after Mother's Day, and he said they had a call from a, an Iranian in Iran, whose mother, or in California, whose mother was in Iran, and she want, he wanted to have a, a present delivered for Mother's Day. And so they do little gift wrapping and pink kind of um, bags and ribbons and so forth. And they, they take it on those motor scooters all over Tehran, and that's how they deliver things. They sell everything, Steinway pianos, uh, any kind of you know, appliance, perfume, movies, you name it, books. It, it is truly the Amazon. Um, now, again, this was a Porsche dealer, and I couldn't resist showing this because uh, they can't keep Porsches in stock. Uh, this is not like during the war years where you go into a, a grocery store and there was no food, there was nothing. And sanctions has had an impact in the ability to develop industry um, and the ability of, of banks to do business with the international community. But when it comes to the squeeze, uh, all over Tehran there are Apple stores. They're illegal, but they all claim to be Apple. And you can get in Iran any iPad, iPhone, iPod, in any color, the newest models, I'm running out of time, and I, I wanted to talk about a couple of other places as well, because um, uh, I'm not going to have time for all of them. But I wanted to take a, a country that particularly we have had the deepest animosity toward, that we've talked about war a lot over the last five years, and give you just a different feel, because, again, perception is reality, and if you have a different perception, then maybe it, it helps get another piece of the puzzle in understanding the truth. Syria. Uh, I did a piece for The New Yorker last year along the Syrian border. I went down to the city of Kobani as it was being bombarded. Those are from American warplanes. Um, so Kurdish troops were fighting on the ground against ISIS. It was uh, a devastating conflict. The tragedy is that Kobani has basically been destroyed in order to win it, and that's the great, great challenge we find. This is a town of 40,000, but literally there's no water, no electricity, no jobs. People don't want to go back because there's not a single house that or business that hasn't been affected. And the thing is, the real danger is we may be able to win militarily in Syria, but what will it cost and what will we do to society? And that's where I spent more time um, with a lot of the refugees, which is a big issue, not just in Europe, but in the United States. And what do we do? How generous can we be in embracing them? This is one of dozens of camps in southern Turkey right along the border. Um, this is how people are living. That's the only toilet facility for 3,500 people. They have no heat. They live in, in tents. And you will find uh, anywhere from 14 to 20 people in one of those tents. These were two little kids before I could even get in, raced over to the fence. They wanted to come talk. These are all, again, kids. And this is what's so important. There are three million kids in Syria who are not in school. And that doesn't include all the kids who are refugees who have no source of education either. This is a little boy who moved me deeply. He'd just come across the border, was going to a camp, and he had trouble seeing and his, no way to get glasses. So his mother obviously had found some woman's glasses that weren't adequate. But you can see the scotch tape. They're way too big. He's still squinting. But the child just couldn't see. But that's all he could do. It was, I, I so wanted to... 
to find an optometrist anywhere in Turkey who would take this child in to find him a pair of glasses. So that's my, those are Syria. I wanted to tell you uh, about Libya, a country that is falling apart, that we invested a lot of money trying to uh, get rid of of, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, a man I interviewed many times. Um, I showed the kids a picture of, of me in one of his tents um, uh, 1981, interviewing him. And the one thing I remember about it is that he had higher heels than I did. <laughs> Very strange man. Um, this is where I interviewed Muammar Gaddafi, and that's what it looks like today. But what really struck me in the chaos of Libya and the aftermath was that across from his compound, kids had constructed this huge, long row of billboards, canvases really, to paint. And they were trying to make the Guinness Book of World Record for the longest series of billboards on peace anywhere on earth. That's one of them. That's another. These were these little girls, and they were all kids who just turned out. It was, you know, they begged, borrowed, and probably not stole, but they found paint wherever they could, and they were all out painting these huge murals that went on and on and on and on. Again, this was a girl I met in, in uh, the market, and I, and I said to her, you know, do you have hope for Libya? And she pulled this out, um, and it stuck with me. The people on the ground want something different. We can't Look at just what the warlords are saying. Now, I was going to take you briefly to Kurdistan in northern Iraq, which is a, a, a part of the world that suffered under Saddam Hussein terribly because they were not only uh, sanctioned by the United Nations and the international community for 12 years, but also sanctioned by Saddam Hussein, and they were on their own. And today they are fighting the most noble fight both against ISIS, both in Iraq and Syria. And the Kurds have been the largest minority in the world without a state. And they have really tried hard. And this was a guy whose business, he had an old sewing machine, and he put together shoes, and it was both a peddler and so forth, on the street corner. This was a little stall where I stopped to talk to a guy getting a haircut, a woman at the market, the kids, a guy selling yogurt on the street. You know, the normality of life, a guy who was the local banker, he changed money on the street, a guy selling pomegranates and citrus. And I, I call her the Kim Kardashian of Kurdistan um, and the Tinkerbell. Now, I'll take you to Tunisia, um, which is where the Arab uprising began. And this is in Sidi Bouzid, the town where the young fruit vendor set himself on fire after a A government official demanded a bribe, a $7 bribe, but it was more than he made in a day. And he'd paid it so often, and he decided he was going to refuse. And when the police inspector then confiscated all his fruit, he decided to protest. And he went from government office to government office to protest and say he wanted his fruit back. He was supporting his four siblings, his mother, and his ailing uncle. And that was his only source of income. And the inspector had also taken his electronic scale. He had nothing even if he got the more produce to weigh it, to sell it. 
And when he had no luck, he went to the governor's office, and he poured paint thinner over his body, and he set himself on fire. And that's what launched the Arab Spring. And this is the monument in his honor, and it is a fruit cart that's pushing aside the thrones of the autocrats in the region. And it says across the base in English, Arabic, and um, French for those who yearn to be free. This is the young fruit vendor, and it's a huge, it's a huge um, thing that over several floors of uh, the building behind where the monument is. Um, the thing that's, that, that concerns me about Tunisia, and it's, it's, again, how do we end wars? How do we prevent wars? How do we prevent the disintegration of societies so that they don't uh, engage in conflict? What was so troubling last December, I was a presidential monitor, uh, or an international monitor at the presidential election. And the kids who brought us the Arab Spring first in Tunisia, that then spread elsewhere, felt betrayed. None of the issues that had sparked the uprising had been addressed. This was not, after all, about liberal democracy. This was about things much more basic, getting a job, not being uh, forced to uh, pay bribes in order just to do a job. When I went to the uh, to that monument, and I stopped at the cafe across the street to talk to other young men, and I said to them, well, how do things stand? And they said, we have far more f- freedoms and far fewer jobs. Only 32% of Tunisians turned out at the most democratic elections ever held anywhere in the Arab world, ever, last year in Tunisia. The lowest turnout was among the young And the city that had the lowest turnout was in Sidi Bouzid, where the Arab uprising started. They just don't think that their issues are being addressed, and it's hard for them to believe in the new system. Even though Tunisia has a wonderful constitution that was an inclusive process that includes things like equal rights for for women, but they feel betrayed. And as a result... Tunisia has contributed more foreign fighters to ISIS than any other country, 3,000. And another 9,000 have been stopped from leaving the country by security forces. So the last thing I was going to show you was about women. We have this stereotype of the woman, you know, covered with her job and her, and her long coat. But look at the women, what the women are wearing in the, in the shop front. Uh, you know, we have stereotypes of, of what women are doing. And women are the engines across the region, I think. Um, and for the first time, you have more than half, with the exception of Yemen, more than half um, uh, of the population, the female population, um, is literate. And that has made a huge difference. They still may cover their face when they tease. But, you know... They are very engaged. These are three young women in Turkey. This was a bridal salon in Libya in the middle of all the chaos. There's a whole street full of them with their daring gowns, a bride in, in uh, Turkey. And this was another young Turkish woman. And, you know, I, I'm a great believer that, that women really are a tremendous source of change in the region. They have been, um, with, again, a couple of exceptions, uh, 
the face in every every country of um, those on the streets. It's no accident that that Tawakol Carmen, a mother of three, a young blogger, won the Nobel Peace Prize two years ago. Um, they are active players. So my whole goal, and I leave it, I'll open it up to your questions, is really to change your perception. Um, that's what journalists are supposed to do, talk about um, the, what's really happening on the ground, to give you more pieces of the puzzle so you can get closer to the truth. We'll never, ever get completely the full story. We'll never get to the absolute truth. But we can all work harder at trying to get closer to it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.